Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today we're talking to the folks over at Sustainable Harvest International. And today we're being joined by Elliot and Indura. And Elliot Powell holds the executive director role at Sustainable Harvest International, whose focus promotes working in partnership to create a just and sustainable world through transformative farmer training that nourishes communities and the earth. Elliot leads the organization's operations, administration, and implementation of its multi-year, multi-phase agroforestry-focused extension program. He works directly with the board of directors and staff to set strategic plans and shape ASHI's future work. Elliot holds a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Management from Indiana University and a Master's in Latin American Studies from Tulane University. We're also joined by Indura Pat, uh, who's a field trainer, and she was raised by her grandmother in, I'm going to butcher this, San Narcisco Village in the district of Corzal. In addition to working as an SHI field trainer, she is about to graduate with a degree in agricultural engineering. She is a lover of nature and farming. Her passion for agriculture was sparked when she began farming as a high schooler. Indura loves helping and sharing her technical knowledge with the people around her. Someday, Indura hopes to become a sustainable organic farmer herself. No matter what she does, she will continue to help the people that need it the most. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Michael, for having us. It's a real pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure as well. So, um, Elliot, why don't you tell us a little bit about the kind of start of the organization and, uh, you know, where did this idea to really focus on the agroforestry start? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we can, I can kind of start from the very beginning of Sustainable Harvest International, or what we, uh, I guess, so commonly refer to it as because it can be a mouthful as SHI. So you'll hear probably a lot of that in our description of what we do and how we do it. But um, SHI is a, it's an international environmental NGO. Uh, we're based here in the United States. Uh, however, our program and our operations and kind of all the work that we take that takes place on the ground happens across Central America. Specifically, we work in Belize, Honduras, and Panama. Uh, Indira is, you know, obviously calling in from our Belize office in the northern mm -hmm. part of the country. Um, our work uh, was kind of founded on this notion 25 years ago that environmental degradation and rural poverty are inextricably linked, right? And so SHI as an organization and what kind of grew out of is this idea that the solution should also be linked. And so it really kind of operates within that nexus of rural communities and working in partnership with smallholder farmers to achieve kind of the uh, the preservation and conservation of the environment, in addition to so many other benefits that we see uh, with regenerative agriculture and nature-based solutions for farmers and their families. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I've actually been to Belize, so I'm a little bit familiar with the um, environment down there and, and, and what that's like. Talk to us about the different countries that you're in. Uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll save uh, Belize for Indira, who's a much better mm -hmm. spokesperson for her own country. But um, so uh, I'd mentioned that we've uh, been uh, operating as an organization for 25 years. Actually, this is our 25th year anniversary. So it's it's a big milestone that we're celebrating mm -hmm. uh, throughout the duration of 2022. Um, and for the most part, we've worked in each one of these three countries for 24, 25 years. Um, we started in Honduras and then kind of moved our way then to Belize and then to Panama. Um, and I'd be remiss uh, if I did not mention uh, SHI's founder's name, as she is still very much an integral part of what we do and who we are. And that's Florence Reed. Um, 
Florence started out as a Peace Corps volunteer, uh, much like myself, actually. But um, through her work uh, with the Peace Corps years ago, um, she grew, uh, I guess, really close with farmers and understanding kind of the obstacles that they face as a subsistence farmer in, in rural communities. And so from there, just working in partnership with them, some ideas grew about um, how to kind of limit the access to or limit the heavy use of agrochemicals and overuse of slash and burn farming techniques. Um, and so this idea was really born to uh, provide more technical uh, technical assistance for small scale farmers in their transition to to regenerative farming or to more sustainable practices. And so uh, I mentioned all of that because that is very much SHI's origin story. And, uh, mm -hmm. and then so she took that idea and believe it or not, went and, and was able to establish the right connections the first time in Honduras. And so that's SHI is kind of first and, and actually it's our largest program. Um, we're currently based in Siwatepeque, which is, uh, if you can think of smack dab in the center of, of Honduras. And I think actually technically it is the smack dab middle of Central America. The entire region is the town mm -hmm. of Siwatepeque, which is a little known uh, factoid. But, um, and so we have an office of operations there. We've been in other departments. Uh, We've been in, we've operated in Joro, we've operated in Santa Barbara, um, and, and a few others too. But for the past oh seven years or so, our Honduras operations and our ten staff members have been based in Siwatepeque and working uh, with the with rural communities in and around that kind of city center, or small town center for for these past seven years. Um, uh, transitioning to the south, I'll say quickly that uh, our team in Panama has been there roughly that same amount of time. Like I had mentioned, uh, we're about two hours, three hours west of the canal in a town called Pononome. Uh, not too dissimilar from Honduras. We've bounced around a little bit, kind of sharing that impact and growing and expanding over the years. But we currently have a team of uh, nine in Pononome. And they use that office space as kind of just their central hub for, for getting out every day and working in partnership with these rural communities uh, around around Pinono May. And, and I'll say that, uh, and I'll, I guess before Indra jumps in about Belize, um, the geography of, uh, of course, varies across Central America and each one mm -hmm. of these countries and the cultures and the contexts all vary uh, drastically. And so I think that's kind of a beauty of how SHI works is that while we do have a framework for our approach and our model, it, uh, it's very flexible in the sense that it can be applied anywhere. And so our teams across each country have uh, adapted to, um, to their, own, uh, their own context and their own geography and the way farmers work, which can, you know, it's, that's very similar to here in the United States where it depends on where you are and uh, your, your type of farming can, can differ depending on soil quality or weather patterns and, and that. So um, it's mountainous in both regions of Honduras and Panama. Um, farmers dedicate themselves toward uh, their more growing kind of rice as a basic grain in, in Panama, in addition to corn and things like that. Whereas in, in Honduras, it's much more beans and, and corn and, and even some coffee farmers too. So um, so yeah, I'll, I'll take a breath there. And then Indra, if you want to explain uh, where what it's like in Honduras, or excuse me, in Belize, where we operate. Well, yes. Um, so here in Belize, the program started working in the southern area. But uh, we re recently moved in northern Belize, which is Corozal and Orange We have been working for approximately six years. Um, we have been working with is the movement here is because of the monoculture, especially sugarcane around this area. So um, we have been partnering with families, um, working with them, um, diversifying in their food system, focusing in the core program of SHI, which are five main, main areas of impact, which is basically um, agroforestry, food sovereignty, livelihood, learning capacity, and um, environment, which is what we are working in um, with vegetable backyard gardens, the local poultry production, agroforestry systems, biodiverse, using regenerative agriculture techniques. Uh, farmers, basically, with whom we partner are small scale, and we work along with them for a period of five years. 
teaching them uh, various techniques on how they can produce in a very healthy and nutritious way using techniques that are very friendly for the environment and also for the human health. Um, we recently graduated two, two um, communities from here in the north of Belize, which were um, San Luis and, and uh, Chunash, which the, the farmers from there had gone through with, around with us for the five years program, and they have learned about being regenerative and producing their own food. And they are still practicing. We're not directly working with them. We still do checkups on them, but we're not directly, work, direct, directly working with them. And they're still practicing what they have learned throughout the five years. We are currently um, starting new communities, doing community selection. It's a vast, diverse culture. I can say that the culture in Belize is very diverse. There are many traditions. So what we have to do is that we work along with the farmers uh, based on their basic necessity and prioritize on what they need, but focusing on food production in backyard garden and agroforestry systems. So um, yeah, we've, we've been working with over 100 farmers and small scale farmers from all the areas. And they, they have seen improvement in their economy and also in their food nutrition. Uh, now share a bit again about how long you've been in Belize. Uh, that right, the, You start, said at the start and you kind of got cut off. Okay, so um, in Belize, the program started in 1999, so it's 21 years ago. Um, started in the southern area. And then we moved here in the north, which is six years ago. Uh, we moved here due to the to the problems facing with monoculture, spe specifically sugarcane and also deforestation in the area. Gotcha. Um, now share a little bit about like, it sounds like you work with farmers. Do you train them on actual like specific crops to grow, like the agroforestry? Are you sharing with them um, maybe like, you know, talking about coffee or, or other shade crops, or do you just do more of a general uh, training program? Well, it depends. Well, we have two, two types of farming. We do the, the backyard gardening, mm -hmm. which is a small, very small. It's that's for um, family consumption. Basically, we do um, a lot of, of crops, short term crops like cabbage, um, cilantro, potato and things that are short term. And then we have the diverse agroforestry system where we plant more um, crops like long term, long term, short and medium term, like plantain, coconut, fruit trees, and also um, um, the forest trees like the mahogany, cedar. So what we do with them is that we start with them sketching on a farm plan where they will, from the first year, we start working with them. We do what is a farm plan and a farm map. So we go with each individual participant that we work with, what type of land they have, where is their farm, or where we can implement a farm, a farm map. Based on the farm map that we have, we do a farm plan on how we use them. We teach them, we give them the material, the planting seeds, uh, the coconuts, we give them and show them how to plant it, the distance of planting and how to maintain it. Um, here, they're more used into conventional farming. So we have to divert that idea and show them that there's an alternative to conventional farming and which is the regenerative agriculture. So once they have their systems established, what we do is technical visits with them, um, assisting all our individual participants. Um, each, each person in charge, each technical staff in charge is responsible of approximately 25 to 30 participants, which we work along with them every day, go visit them and give them advice on how to resolve their problems. As I mentioned, each of them have their own problems, their own necessities. So we focus on their necessities and prioritize on which ones are 
are, are most important so that we can start working with them. Mm. Share a bit about like the, the, to you, what are the principles of regenerative uh, that you guys follow as an organization? Because obviously there's, there's a little bit of difference between how different people view it. When we implement here or when, or when I talk about regenerative agriculture, what we do is we start first with capacity building. Now, this is very important because here the culture is very um, into conventional farming. So what we have to start with is groundwork, which is um, the training, capacity building with the participants on what is regenerative agriculture. And for, for us, it's basically regenerating the soil, giving back life to the soil, the biodiversity in the soil. So we do various techniques. And the principles is to maintain the, the soil always um, covered using cover crops. We use here the cannabalia and the mucuna, which are um, beans um, that are used for cover crops. We also do the composting and mulching so that we don't leave bare the soil. Um, the use of biodiverse agroforestry system to, to foster what is the flora and the fauna. And also we do the bioproducts, which are organic, which are which we use what our available resources are natural. For example, we do the neem, which is a tree that we can grow here in Belize. We use the leaves, and that is used for insects to um, to eliminate insects, and also different other trees that can be used that are locally grown so that they can elaborate their products. So going back to the principles, um, principles that we follow is to maintain always the soil um, covered, um, incre increase the biodiversity, um, make sure to, to take care of the human health and also the environment, and also to be generating income without having to be expanding in new areas. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, talk a little bit about the typical farmer that you work with. How, I mean, how big of acreage are they having? What is the, are they a first generation or they've been in their family for years? Uh, well, basically the farmers that we work with are very small. They're small scale farmers. As I previously mentioned, we work with um, low income farmers, which means that we focus on those vulnerable families that, um, to give them that alternative or that helping hand so that they can be producing for their own, own food. So basically here in Belize, we can see that the farms are, are very small, but um, from small farmers that we are working with, that's, that's our startup because their farmers see what these small scale farmers or even approach to us to give them advice on how to maintain their, their land. So um, answering to your question is, we work with small scale farmers and mostly all of the family members are involved in the in the gardening from kids to youths and also to the parents and adults that are in the house. Gotcha. So what you're saying is that there's a lot of small farms, but each farm is generally having not only the family, but extended family involved as well into the operation. Yes, exactly. So everybody is helping the earth to produce. And we have various projects. Like I said, we have the vegetable backyard garden where they are producing um, short-term crops. Um, they produce from tomatoes, hot pepper, um, cilantro. And basically, they produce the vegetables that are consumed locally. Mm -hmm. So they will have a very nutritious diet. And because they're not using toxic um products, the kids can also help and uh, monitoring disease and pests in the garden. So everybody's involved. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Sure, a little yeah. bit. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to jump in there to add a little bit of uh, extra, extra details. I think that's a great answer from Indira. I was just going to say on average, 
typically, uh, I would say an SHI participant or family farm, uh, granted it does vary uh, depending on the country and the context we're working in, but it's right around kind of eight acres or four hectares or so, um, just kind of looking back on the more than 3,000 farmers that and their families that we've been working with, that's right around the average size. Um, they might be a little bit bigger in, let's say, Honduras or a little bit smaller in Panama, but that's pretty typical. Um, and then just to reiterate that point, I think that Indra explained it really well, is just the idea that these are, it's a real family operation, which is so typical of, you know, of, of, of farms kind of all the world over. Um, but these are subsistence farms that are just doing enough to to feed their own family. And then in the case that there is, you know, a, a, there's an extra harvest or, or there's stuff har left over from the initial harvest, then only then do they begin to think about, oh, how this might look going to market or selling to a neighbor or something like that. And SHI is kind of there and part of that process the whole time. Um, but yeah, it's a family affair, no doubt. Uh, typically there's a kind of a head of household that we'll work with, but that's, only for kind of monitoring and evaluation when you're there. And Indra, I'm sure could talk a little bit more about it. I mean, as soon as SHI or a field trainer shows up, uh, there's a there's a big exodus from the home and everybody comes out and it's it's warm greetings, but it's a, it's not just working with one single individual or just working with adults, you know, kind of everybody chips in and, and ensures the success of moving through that transition. Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed, too, that your staff, you tend to, it seems like you have a few U.S.-based, which are like for more of the operation or the management, mm -hmm. but then you also have a lot of going to be on the, on the ground actually doing the education. Yeah, that's, and that's actually, that's really important and really intentional um, for us to have uh, kind of a smaller footprint here in the U.S., just kind of doing things more behind the scenes, you could you could say. Mm -hmm. So it's important administrative work, important fundraising. Um, of course, we're working closely with our U.S.-based board of directors and setting kind of uh, strategy for the future of the organization and the direction we want to go. But we're very intentional about hiring um, just only local staff for each one of our programs um, and then the support for them as well. So, you know, it, it's so important for just kind of global development work in general to have staff that uh, understand the local environment, understand local language and and local context only there. Mm -hmm. I think it, we're able to, you know, um, make advances and, and, and actually have farmers learning from each other or learning from people that are local to the, to the region. Absolutely. It's not some person from someplace else coming in. It's more of someone they may have already had a relationship with, or at least is of a similar culture. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the kind of, unfortunately, the global development uh, kind of sector as it in general has had a, has made a bad name for itself from mm -hmm. decades ago, where it was the opposite, where it was kind of flying in, dropping in and telling people how to do what, and then leaving. Um, we take a much, much different approach. Uh, and it's something that we consider on a daily basis from our communications to who's being hired and where. Um, we want to make sure that we're, we're representing the, the participant families and farmers as best as we can. And part of that is meaning that they work alongside uh, you know, their local colleagues in, in Panama or, or Belize in this situation with Indira. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the, in, in your phases here, you've got your method. What, talk about the small business development and microfinance. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll, I'll start with that. And if Indira, if you want to add anything, um, but I had mentioned, so in the beginning, and we can kind of pick up where Indira mentioned that we do a, a farm plan and that really sets the stage uh, for, for growth and sets the stage for what a farmer and their family wants to see in terms of change. And they begin to work through those phases and, you know, it's a four to five year program and it's multi-phase and multi-stage. And so as they begin to implement uh, these kind of regenerative practices, uh, start to build out, let's say, an agroforestry setting where you've got lots of different, like a real biodiverse um, grouping of, of plants and you're starting to bring in great new habitat. And, and you kind of reach this point and what we've seen with our experience is families begin to achieve these levels of food security and food sovereignty. 
Um, and I think that that next that second part, food sovereignty, is really important, and we hone in on that a lot in the sense that um, we want to make sure that uh, there's there's ample kind of room for families to be deciding what they want to feed themselves and what they are are deciding for the future for their family and the generations to come. So that sovereignty component is really about agency, and so they begin to collect seeds. They begin to you know move through those motions of of transitioning away from kind of being the recipient of uh, and a reactive stance to that real proactive role for their own land and mm -hmm. where they see growth for their family. And so at a certain point, um, it gets to where they oftentimes produce enough to consider, you know, beyond their own family consumption or home consumption to sell and, and, and you know, enter a market of whatever that may look like. Um, it can be very informal, and but we also have good examples of more formal entrance to market. Um, and it's, you know, I would say there's no kind of real typical time frame, but it's towards the middle to latter half of those five years that families have, you know, had a cycle or two of harvest, and then they start to get more comfortable and they start to see that growing this way can actually, one, achieve those, those levels of security that they want for their house. And then two, if there's interest, SHI will be a can be a big part of that um talking about well what's what does it look like to sell uh leftover plantain crop to your neighbors or mm -hmm. maybe you want to process that first and you make platanitos which is i don't know if you're familiar with those but it's like a fried plantain chip and you bag it up and they're great kind of street snacks um and so there's all sorts of different products that that can be uh we've got great examples in honduras for example of uh you know, opening their own kind of little bread shop or panaderia, um, and and even more so with selling um, organic fertilizers and organic uh, pesticide part or components for a farm. And so, it's not everybody, but we really believe that as an organization that providing that kind of space for that stuff to grow, for these small business ideas to flourish, is an important component in in having a sustainable. Uh, a sustainable farm and a sustainable existence. And so we've seen farms that have just grown and, and individuals really thrive in terms of small business development. And SHI is there to kind of offer advice and coaching. Now we don't offer loans or anything like that. Like we don't do that microfinance component, but um, we will help kind of direct people in that or point people in that direction. And there's workshops that we offer for kind of understanding your books and um, we also have, especially in Belize and, or excuse me, especially in Honduras and in Panama, we've got, which I think is a, it's a fascinating kind of additional component to our work, which is the creation of rural banks. Oftentimes, these farmers don't have access to credit or any sort of like formal lending institution, mm. and so, um, and again, we're no, we're not micro uh, finance officers or loan officers or anything like that, but we will help set up a, or help the structure for a, a rural bank or a, a community bank where farmers themselves, individuals and family members will join in and part of these, these farms, they set their own terms, they set their own rules and they just borrow to each other. And it's like the, a beautiful example of banking at its, at its finest, you know? Um, and they set their own interest rates for if they want to lend. And they're really just it, people kind of loan from them, from each other for emergencies, or if they want to, maybe buy a refrigerator that will help keep that new produce cold to then sell it. Uh, it's what helps that, it helps that small business aspect along. Um, so I don't know if Indira, if you have, if you want to share any good examples or farmers that you're working with now that might have kind of, that have gone into that fray of small business development. Um, yeah, I can share some that we have gone through is the, the production of plantain and also poultry. So um, when we talk about the agroforage system, the main product that we produce here is the plantain in the agroforage system, which is the first one to start bearing. So when they have an excess of this produce, um, what they do is do bio, um, subproducts of it. For example, they do banana cake, um, puddings, they do jams. When the fruit seasons here in Belize comes, that is around the, starting from April to this this time of the year, which is August, September. We have we have um, mangoes, we have avocado, we have plums, and different other fruits that they have already in their farms. 
So what they do is that they do sub-products of this and they sell it. They do jellies and they do um, plantain flour that they either sell it or consume it in their in their household. But most of their surplus is sell, sold in the local community and they generate an extra income out of it. Now, we also have the women, which is this, this project is more for the women. They're more um, like in charge, which is the poultry. Um, they do local, local chicken production. Um, they start feeding chickens for, for them to be selling in the community, either by chicks or they kill it and clean it and they sell it. And here in Belize, um, the local chicken is the best chicken to eat. It's the more nutritious one. So it has a higher price than the, than the local one, than the other one that is sold in the market. So they make a living out of it. They can um, um, generate income. So that is one. And then we have another instance here that we are just starting in a new community, which is the, the Santa Martin or Joa, where we have already um, participants that are producing a lot of pineapple, which is their source of, of living. And due to the market, the demand and supply, we have really, really um, times when the prices are very low for this product. So what um, we're going to start with them is showing them that we can do value added products with them, which are the jellies or the almond bars or other products that can be, do, can be done from the pineapples so that they can use other resources um, that they have in, and get some extra cash from that. So that, that's part of the program as well. And that's what we do for the microfinancing micro part here. Very cool. Now, what it sounds like, though, is that obviously over the five years, some of these farmers do end up um, you know, starting to do value-added businesses or just selling their product. But it sounds like a lot of the farmers are more just substance for themselves and their families, and they might have an off-farm uh, job. Is that correct? It depends on the community that we go to, because as I said, we have diverse culture, we have different tradition, and each community in which you work is very different. So for instance, for the communities that graduated last year, which had completed with us their five years program, um, most of them were sugarcane farmers. So and I can say that most of them changed or at least exchanged their um, production of sugarcane for agroforestry systems, where they have established diversity of crops they're being produced. And now talking about the communities that we are currently working with um, in Pachacan, which is the community that I was in charge, the majority of them are already farmers. So they produce in small scale, but they do it in a conventional way. So what uh -huh. we do is that we divert that into regenerative agriculture. So they are already producing and they are already having a living um, out of that. Now, talking about the communities, um, other communities is that some of them have a, a job. So they are depending on that job, but some of them see that the way that we are producing can sustain themselves. So they um, are looking forward into con expanding their production and working more in what we are doing right now rather than having the job that they're doing that is very tiring and the, the pay is not enough for their for their family. So we do have cases and uh, in, in all the areas that we are that we are working that the farmers are, are diverting what they're doing to to farming not only for themselves but also as a business type. Gotcha that makes sense. Hey, Thriving Farmers, do you need a quick win on your farm? Have you struggled to find the right soil amendments that maximize your fruit or vegetable production? In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow and their prebiotic formulas. I was skeptical at first, but this past season, I boosted my strawberry yields by 18% with an AgriGrow product called Ultra. What does an 18% yield increase look like in dollars? My $6 in product investment returned me $868 worth of marketable strawberries 
on just three rows. This is the kind of ROI that we need as small scale producers. Ultra is an OMRI listed soil prebiotic technology that has been proven to increase yields and develop soils. To find out more or to order, go to smallfarm.solutions. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all thriving farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for 10% off discount on your first order. Now you also on your on your website here have your method page. So I really like how you've got that laid out here with that and then also showing the different methods that work, which so you know reforestation of Honduras and the DYI fertilizers and such. Um, what would you say has been some interesting developments, you know, along the years of discoveries of working with um, now for a quarter century? Yeah, I think that's a great question because um, we've certainly have changed and evolved over time. Um, and, you know, I think just being an, an open to that and understanding that uh, techniques will will shift and, uh, you know, how we work with farmers, we're always open to that. You know, I think we, we really promote ourselves as a learning organization in that regard. And so much of that comes from just listening. Um, and so we certainly are programming the methods that you just mentioned that are on our website have have developed have changed we've removed things but as we and that's really a result of us just being a, a good listener I like to think uh, to uh, to field trainers such as Indira but also farmers and their families to say this is actually what's more beneficial to us mm -hmm. um, I think a good a good uh, explanation of that would be we started out much more as as kind of a reforestation organization in the early years you know a flow our close colleague and founder was on here she would talk about you know how it was much more dedicated to just getting you know trees in the ground and having that be a part of of this transition um for for kind of taking care of the environment and 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 such but we started to just hear from farmers that uh that it was like they were interested in what was it like to grow um what would it be like to grow a small vegetable garden like indira has mentioned uh mm. those are the types of things you know, gaining access to food security or achieving those levels through seed collecting and, and growing your own food. That was never a part of what we initially did, but came as a result of just hearing from the farmers and them, you know, kind of saying, these are some other items. And that's an ongoing process. We're constantly doing that as we, as we move forward. Like, you know, how do we envision this next 25 years for SHI? And so much of that is feedback that we receive from farmers and 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 really the, who are the experts you know um local agronomists such as our staff but also farmers and and their generations of experience um so we've developed you know the methodology really the one that we use now came to be probably 2011 so 15 years ago or so where we started to grow as an organization we began to mature a lot more we also realized that we needed a much more kind of structured approach to um, and that it couldn't be kind of willy nilly, um, and that moving through phases was a really uh, helpful part of the process for going through a big transition. We also recognized that you couldn't just do this overnight, uh, and and there's a lot of good kind of conversations out there on this exact topic. Um, but you know, for SHI, our sweet spot has always been, or not always been, but it's grown into this kind of four to five years of of engagement of partnership because we feel like you know you're there a long time it's a long relationship but you're able to see changes over the year over the years because none of this stuff happens overnight uh, mm -hmm. and so and that's nice you're able to work with farmers one two three harvests in and things start to sink sink in and things start you can ask questions and you can respond and say let's try this again and see what happens next year so having a program that's longer, which was never really the intention from the beginning, or at least as long as it is now, allows for these, I guess you could call them unintended outcomes to really kind of surface to the top and we could we can see them. Um, I think another thing with our program that's developed over time is just how we work with farmers. Um, you know, we've, we've, we do this, you can kind of think of it in this like direct technical assistance program. Um, but figuring out that spot where 
you know, Indira currently works with 30 to 35 families, but that ratio of one to 35 has taken SHI a long time to get to. You know, if it's too many, one to 100 farmers, what's the quality of work look like? Um, and then, you know, if it's one to 10, are we really maximizing our impact? Uh, and so we've kind of landed on this one to 35 number as something that's been developed uh, over years as, and it really comes down to a science, you know, it's kind of like a full day and a half a day per month per or per two weeks per family and allows that field trainer to really give that on-site technical assistance and provide answers and feedback. Um, and I will note, just to kind of add to this, because uh, I think this is a really, this is a great part of SHI in the sense that we're we're always trying to innovate and, and learn from farmers, but also from ourselves, is, is to kind of poke holes in our model. And we know what works. And I think we've really developed a name for ourselves across the region, um, but that shouldn't stop us. And so we've got a, like a really great pilot program going on right now in Honduras, where we're testing what it, a farmer to farmer model looks like now. You know, a farmer to farmer, especially to many of the listeners to this podcast, that, that's not a new approach by any means. There's lots of organizations out there that that work that way. But for SHI, that's been that's just not how we've done it. And so we're testing it and seeing really positive results. And 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 so what would it look like if we had a field trainer that worked with 20 people, but that they would then became kind of community agro agroecological promoters? And then they turned around and trained their neighbors because there's nothing quite the same as farmers teaching farmers. We're kind of that step removed, but if we can facilitate an environment where farmers are, are able to share maybe new techniques or uh, that we're able to provide, but, but they learn from each other, that's a pretty um, good spot to be in, kind of SHI almost one step removed from, the, from that uh, facilitation role. And so, we're in, we're in the middle of that now, and, and it might, you know, inform how we do our work in the coming 25 years, like I mentioned. So it's, it's a constant process. It's constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. So with the four to five years, how often are you visiting with the farmer one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, Indra, I feel like you could probably share just what does that look like? What's your day-to-day -day look like with a specific farmer? Okay, so it, it depends, it depends because we have a lot of activities to do when it comes to working with farmers. We have, um, as I mentioned, we have to first prioritize. We need to know what are the needs of the farmers because each one of them have different needs. So we focus on their needs and depending on their needs is the activity that we plan to do with them. Now we try to do a work plan and stick to that work plan, but there, there are always um, things that come up that sometimes we have to change that work plan, but a typical week might look like visiting um, 10 farmers uh, for a week or more depending on the activities, um, sharing with them, and they share with us what their problems is. From very early morning, um, we go with them, uh, we spend the, the, the day with them, and when I said spend the day with them, it's not literally going and with one family, but go in the community and working with different families, um, giving them advice if they're in their, they're just transplanting or they're in, have uh, problems with pests and disease, giving them advice, showing them how to do bioproducts. Because when it comes to the regenerative needs, it's not one time that we're going to show them and, okay, go ahead, do it. No, it's something that we have to go be constant with them, working with them and showing them how to do it, not only telling them how to do it, but working along with the, the families, doing the activity with them. And that has created a great bond between the, the technical staff and the families because they have considered us as part of their families. So they don't see us as a just a field officer or a field trainer there. They consider us part of their family. They, they share um, personal things with us. Um, and that's, that's gained through time. So, um, going back to 
what uh, what you were asking um what is an activity that we do is that we work along with them depending on the necessities that they have as i mentioned from transplanting to monitoring pests and disease to applying techniques to to um giving materials to constructing projects because we also do small projects which I, I, I think I forgot to mention that we also do small projects like compost pits and, and the chicken coops, the ecological stoves. So we do different projects complementing on the areas of impact that we have. So an activity for a week for us is different. Every week is different. So we have a lot to do. But that those are some of the list of activities that we do. Uh -huh. I I hope that answered what you're trying to get. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then with this, you know, you're working with them for four to five years, and then they kind of graduate. What's next for them? Is your goal as part of that training in the last couple of years to start doing, as you said, that uh, multiplier effect where they start the training others? And how does that fit in? Okay, so they they have gained that experience throughout the five years four to five years that they've been working with us they have gained that experience to to know how to produce for themselves and how to start um their small business however we don't just leave them and say okay we finish with this committee and we move on no what we do is that we do a postgraduate um, plan which means that we have a plan to work with them even after they have graduated and maybe not as directly as before, but still do visits with them, um, occasional visits with them to see how they're doing or how they're going. And as I said, they consider us now part of their family. So even after we have, uh, we're not working in the communities anymore, they still um, talk with us, have that communication with us and with with us and when we have when they have a problem they communicate with us and then we find a solution even though we're not directly working with them um, as before but um, the communities are not just graduated and done we still have an extra plan for them uh, a future plan with them after they graduate mm -hmm. What would you say the average uh, transformation is from like starting start to finish with them? Are they moving completely from conventional or are they starting to do just more regenerative uh, techniques? So um, talking about here in the communities that we've been working here, yes, there is a change, a big change in, in the way they're farming. Um, not all of them change completely to regenerative agriculture because as as I was been saying, the most um, dominant crop here in Belize, the north, north area is sugarcane. So most of these families depend on sugarcane. So um, they diversify in what they're doing, but they don't completely move because of the money that they're generating when it comes to sugarcane production. Now, they believe that even though they're um, producing um, the, the sugarcane is not giving, that's more about tradition rather than what the business that they're doing. So we still have farmers that are practicing um, conventional, but the majority of them have transitioned to, to regenerative. And we have, for instance, uh, farmers that have completely left behind their, um, their sugarcane fields and turn it to, to biodiverse agroforestry system. So I can say that uh, we have a high percentage of farmers that have, um, have changed from conventional to regenerative agriculture. And uh, we have figures when it comes to that, um, showing that we have areas that have been changed from conventional to, to regenerative agriculture to organic farming. So we have a high high percentage of farmers that have changed to to organic farming. Yeah, and I'll just add, uh, I think that's a that's a wonderful response, Indira. I'll just add that we've taken Michael uh, a look back on graduates. Oh, I believe it was in 2018 or 2019, we did a postgraduate study because uh, we wanted to just make sure, we wanted to see what these farms were looking like and what the experience was like for graduates. Some 
uh, up to five, even seven years out, um, because if things are not sticking, if, if the only kind of time mm -hmm. that these practices are working is in the, during the intervention, then what's, it's, it kind of begs that question, what's the point? Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we could, we could look back and see that and, and offer any changes and kind of redirect ourselves if necessary. And, and it was a great learning experience. And we went back to around 350 graduates from a certain kind of area and a certain or a certain time frame, I should say. And we actually did that in, in Panama and Honduras. Um, and we found out that some 91% were still using uh, agroforestry techniques. And so that for us is a is a good indication that, you know, these trainings and these workshops are are sticking and that the the long-term approach, this kind of long game approach that we promote is, it helps uh, the staying power for these techniques. And, and just to add for, to Indra's comment, um, you know, ideally everybody would then just kind of go to zero, zero use of agrochemicals, zero use of kind of intense slash and burn farming in these highly populated areas. And that's always the goal. However, you know, what we're talking about is really, it's kind of a behavior change. I mean, this transcends uh, you know, generations of, of, of how people have been doing things. It transcends uh, kind of cultural components. And so, and just across all aspects of life for a family. And so it takes time. Um, and we've seen that, as Indra mentioned, we've seen them transition to, to 100%, you know, reaching that moment of kind of regenerative agriculture. But I think what's important is that there's a constant effort to re reduce the amount of agrochemicals. And that's what we're working toward. You know, when we first start out working with a family, it's important that, you know, we test an area. It's not like they're going to transition overnight because you've got to be able to show the incremental steps of getting there. And sometimes those outcomes don't happen until after we've, we've left or we've gone. Um, but ideally, you know, you're showing that there's a real trend toward you know, implementing more sustainable techniques that you're moving towards that regenerative agriculture stage or state. And then, but I think I just, I, you know, also so that it's not lost is that these, these participants and their families, they are essentially becoming kind of local leaders in their communities for nature-based solutions and for restoring the environment. And, um, and that's huge. And we see that with them sharing with other families and, and neighbors. And, and sometimes they rise up and they're, you know, a part of a business or they become a local leader to an organic movement uh, and all of that stuff takes time. And so really it's, it's, these are climate leaders and activists as well, uh, in addition to, you know, the real kind of technical side of, of farm management. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously I agree that the incremental movement of just, again, we're just focused on moving the needle. We're not going to go from zero to a hundred all at once, but that aspect, and that's great to see that, that, you know, that is sticking, that you are seeing that long-term change. Um, I know you did talk about, you know, obviously our passion here at Growing Farmers is we really focus on the business side about teaching them how to build strong businesses because without a strong business structure, you typically are just growing food. And mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, that's great, but you've got to know how to manage a business so you can you can grow and scale. Um, mm -hmm. So share a little bit. I know you mentioned like um, uh, like bookkeeping classes. What other like business training do you guys do for, for the farmers? Yeah, I mean that's a great point, and I think that's that's also what why we do that component, or why livelihoods for us is an important impact area. Um, you know, each one of these farmers are essentially kind of small scale entrepreneurs, and mm -hmm. and and trying to reach those levels of food sovereignty first, and that's important or food security because you know there's a there can be a, a there's a potential for kind of uh, going after the wrong thing. If you want to just grow a bunch of tomatoes, well, then you're not able to provide for your family, the health mm -hmm. and the, the nutrients that you need. And so SHI kind of provides that first rung of just getting to that established level of food security. But 1000% agree that building up kind of the, the small business side is, is how you're able to kind of entrench these areas of sustainability into the farm. Uh, and it keeps the farmer going and it pays for expansion or scaling and it pays for other aspects, you know, school uniforms and whatever mm -hmm. it is in a family. And so SHI, for years, we had small business coordinators actually on our team. And then we've kind of folded it into what field trainers do on the day-to-day -day basis. But it's, um, 
you know, kind of bringing farmers together and saying, all right, we've reached these levels of, of, of food security for those that are interested, because it's not a requirement. And I think that's important too. Um, it's not a requirement that everybody goes to business or, or create something because mm-hmm. um, we're working really with that interest and in, of, the, of the, the interest level of the farmer, but so many do. And they say, yeah, that sounds interesting, but where do we even begin? And so we have uh, staff members in our offices that that really work closely with um, kind of offering savings workshops, uh, how to you know correctly do your own bookkeeping, and then I mentioned the classes around uh, community uh, community banking, and that provides that local lending opportunity. Uh, yeah. And then and then they grow from there, and and then when there's there's always kind of like exemplary cases. I'm thinking of one right now, and in Joro, in this community of Piedra Gorda, where some farmers got together, some families, and they actually built a separate building where they could house and sell biopesticides. So these are all organically made fertilizers and pesticides and everything that you would normally use really like powerful, toxic agrochemicals for. They've figured out kind of with that trainings and the workshops with SHI, some of the local materials that can be brought in together. And I know Indra does these workshops herself, so she could even share more about them. But they, there was so much interest in it that they had community members from mm. outside communities coming over and saying, hey, we've heard good stuff about that. And so these farmers formed essentially a small co-op, a small business, and they had you know, little labels printed that we were able to help with. And, and it's, a, it's a really kind of thriving business in this otherwise extremely rural, hard to reach community, but people are now seeking it out as a source of really kind of nature positive solutions. Um, that's just kind of one of many success stories in that regard. Now, not every farmer has that same one, but they had that drive and, and SHI's role there is to really facilitate that it can kind of grow and be what it, what, you know, fulfill the potential that it has. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, just to add something else, and in, in, in that is that um, our trainings, when we talk about our trainings in, in coming to business management is we do it by groups or we do it individual. So it depends on who is producing for, um, who has that surplus to be sold in the community. Now, Mainly what we teach the, the, the participants or the farmers is that they need to focus on the type of market we have, on the consumption um, the people from the community have, because you cannot be selling something or, or producing something that the, the community itself is not used to, to buying or to having their diets or eating. So we have to focus on what their what is their tradition what their their culture is and what they're used to eating so that we can sell that surplus um so that's one um identifying community identifying markets um the part of record keeping just to emphasize on what elliot said the part of record keeping and also on how they can store that extra product that they have because not everything can be sold or not everything they can consume. So there's where the value added um, trainings also come into place, which is part of the of the business part because um, we don't only tell them, okay, you can do this type of, of product, but we also teach them how to do it. Um, we bring uh, maybe people from other organizations, um, collaborate with other organizations or other entities where they have people that know how to do certain stuff um, and they come and teach the, the participants on how to produce other, other um, value-added products of, out of what they are producing. So that's part of, of the business that we, the business training that we do with them, but it's not with all, it's with basically the ones that are having that surplus and that are 100% dedicated to, to working that way. Mm. That's awesome. Cheryl, as we wrap up, kind of, you know, any final thoughts you want to share with the audience about the organization or about like working with farmers or about like, you know, techniques you guys are seeing work? Okay, on, on my part, I would say that um, SHI is a, organization 
which is, which is for, for myself, the experience that I'm getting here is the best because it's working with farmers, working with people out there, and it's the best feeling in the world, sharing your experience and helping others to, to divert their mentality and to show them that there are, there are alternatives on, on how to produce the food into healthier. My greatest satisfaction is seeing the participants um, harvest their produce and having a plate of food when the kids come around me because as i mentioned we work with families so they have kids when the, the kids come uh, when i reach the community the kids come um, running and hugging me because as i mentioned they, they consider you part of their family because they're seeing you in a daily basis so um SHI is doing a great work here in Belize, and I'm sure that it's doing a great work in the other countries that we are, in the other programs that we are working in, we're doing a great job, and the, there is a level of impact that can be visible, um, and anybody can see it, even though they just come by and visit for a while, um, they can see the impact. We have cases where people from outside are, are approaching our participants to buy from them produce um, because it's organic and they know that we are working with them. So they, they approach the, the farmer, the participants to, to buy their produce because they know that it's healthier. So um, I am very happy to say that the organization is doing a great work here in Belize and that we are moving forward um, every time. And Indira, what is your favorite farming tool? My favorite farming tool, a machete. <laughs> All right. Now, why, why a machete? It's very small, but very powerful for myself. Why? Because a machete is used even before farming. Like even before you start, you need a machete to clean up the area where we're going to work. Um, a machete is very useful to cut down um, branches that have been dried or dead, or even um, to. Um, here we use local stuff. So, in order for tutoring of the tomatoes or other crops that we produce, uh, we need um, the bush sticks. So we go to the field and get some bush sticks and we need a machete. So a machete is very efficient, not only for that, but for many other things. So for me, my favorite tool would be a machete. I guess I'll jump in. Um, well, I don't have the same experience that Indira does working kind of at the farm level every day. Uh, I actually do also have a machete here at my home that, that, I, yeah. use pretty, that I use quite regularly to to do. I mean, I've got a backyard garden and things like that, but it's wonderful for cleanup. I think the utilitarian component on it. So I'll do a plus one on the machete. All right. <laughs> and Elliot, any final thoughts? Yeah, I just want to, I guess I'd share what uh, from Indira. I mean, I, I I think that was really well said. And just to, to piggyback on, on that, you know, SHI has been, we've been doing this for 25 years. And, and like I mentioned, we've we're been very much a, we are a very much a learning organization and and so as we shift and move towards thinking about what's the next 25 years look like we're we're very kind of uh, aware of of all the wonderful experiences that we've had including you know what kind of having Indira on board and all that and all the great partnerships that she's been able to to develop for us um, but, you know, we're open to, to the areas that we've had obstacles or that have challenges, and I think that that's important. But um, so we're taking that into consideration when we think about, you know, these next 25 years. And we've recently launched this, you'd mentioned the word scale a little bit ago, Michael, and we've recently mm -hmm. launched a, a kind of our big audacious goal for the future. Um, you know, we've had a lot of these successes as as a regional leader for these past 25 years, but we kind of see it as this almost a moral imperative to, you know, work with more farmers around the world and contribute at a higher level towards, you know, climate crisis and the, and what we can do to restore ecosystems. And so we're really excited and talking with partners from kind of individual donors all the way up to foundations, uh, ones that have been with us for a long time or, or new ones that we're kind of bringing into the fold now about this vision. And uh, just to kind of compartmentalize how we're thinking about this vision, um, it's, you know, we kind of kind of see expanding our current program, the one that we're working on now, 
innovating on that current program. So the example I shared in uh, in Honduras of that farmer to farmer approach. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we see our big audacious goal. We can only kind of meet it by working in collaboration with other organizations and other government entities. So that's kind of framing our future. We, you know, we've worked with a little bit over 3000 families in this 25 years of of work, which is a good big, that's a big number, but it's not, uh, it's kind of a drop in the bucket for the 500 million smallholder farmers that are out there. And maybe wow. we won't reach all of them, <laughs> but uh, we're going to try to really expand that impact. And so we've set this ambitious goal to work with a million farms by 2030. And that's in line with the sustainable development goals for, for eight years from now. And so uh, we don't envision doing it alone by any means, but we feel like we've got a few things that we can share with our method, with our approach and these learnings that we've had and, and do it in collaboration. Um, you know, one thing Indira didn't mention and to put her on the spot is we've got a wonderful relationship that we're building and kind of testing out with the Ministry of, an, of Agriculture in Belize. And that's the same thing going on in, in Panama. And so by working with local government, we're able to... Um, we're able to achieve, I think, a lot more. And so that's where our focus and our conversations are happening. So I would just say that that's, that's kind of what we have in store for the future um, for SHI and to folks, if you wanna hear more about us or learn more about what we do, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, you can find us on our website at sustainableharvest.org. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's an exciting future for us. Yeah, very cool. Well, I really appreciate Elliot, you and Indira coming on and sharing today. Um, love your vision, love your passion, and exciting to see small local farmers changing. And again, as you said, going more holistic, going more organic and uh, sustainable. So that's awesome to see. Thanks so much for having us, Michael. It was a real pleasure to be here and enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure for myself as well. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.